I announced this evening that if it was the Lord's will, we'd begin a short three-part series tonight uh, on the father of lies. I believe that the Scripture says much about Satan. In fact, I know that it does. Uh, And I'll say this, that I don't believe that the Scripture would say anything about Satan that it didn't have to say. Let me say that again so that you can really soak it in. This book right here is about Jesus Christ, is it not? Every bit of it. Genesis to Revelation. Every chapter, every word is a revelation of the Son of God to humanity. This isn't a book about Satan. It's not a book about angels. not a book about devils. All those things are found in it, but it's not about those things. It's about Jesus Christ. And so I don't believe that Scripture would tell us anything about Satan except what we need to know about Satan. There's a lot of speculation, a lot of fantasy about this person uh, that the Bible reveals to us as being the devil, Lucifer, Satan. And I believe every bit of it is given for our warning and for our wisdom. And so I think it's important that we examine the interactions that are recorded in Scripture with Satan and others so that we might learn something about him. I gave the example this morning of a football player watching game footage. And he spends some time watching footage of what he did, and that's important. And I think it's very valuable that we look into the perfect law of liberty And we examine ourselves. But then there's other times that he's not watching himself. He's watching the opponent. And he's wanting to find out what they're apt to do, what their trends, what their plays, what their strategies are. And there's much value spent in examining, not in worshiping, not in glorifying, uh, not in fantasizing, but in studying the opponent that we might learn something about his tactics. We know this is scriptural because it's the will of God that we not be ignorant of His devices. That's what the Word of God says. And so tonight I want us to read the first of these three accounts. And I want us to notice the very first thing that Satan attempts to try to destroy and to try to cast doubt upon. Genesis chapter number 3, beginning in verse number 1, the Bible says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, uh, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? 
And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam, he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you tonight for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the wisdom of the Holy Spirit as he applies it to our hearts and lives. I pray, Father, that we would take seriously these scriptures before us and this matter. Lord, help us to see the gravity. Help us to see the danger of the situation of allowing Satan to have a stronghold in our lives. Father, we just love you so much. We thank you for Calvary. We thank you that we're overcomers. We thank you that we're more than conquerors. Now, Lord, help us to be vigilant and sober concerning our adversary, the devil. Lord, we love you tonight. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to read one verse to you that I think will be sort of a synopsis verse for this entire series. It's found in John chapter 8 and verse 44, and you can turn there if you wish, although it's just one verse, I'm about to read it. But Christ is speaking to the Pharisees, and He says to them this, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie... He speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Something you're going to find as we, over the next three weeks, examine all three of these passages, is that in every single instance, when Satan comes speaking, Satan comes lying. It's high time we as believers begin to understand that Satan will never speak absolute truth to us. He may take a grain of truth and wrap it in a blanket of lies and try to feed it to us. But the reality is that Satan is never going to speak absolute truth to us. Any information, any inclination, any feeling that we get that is of satanic origin is by its very nature a lie at its source. That's all he can speak is lies. And this is important for us to understand, because I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. We are living in a day where Christianity is bound in satanic shackles, where people are believing wholeheartedly the lies that Satan is setting forth in their marriages, in their homes, in their careers, in their churches. Satan is wreaking havoc, and the only thing that's going to stop him 
is if we apply the teaching of the Word of God concerning Him and put our faith, not just at the moment of salvation, but in the everyday matters of our life, if we lean upon the cross of Calvary and the person of Christ and the leading of the Holy Spirit, that's the only way that we're going to gain victory in these everyday matters. Now, some of you would say, Preacher, wait a minute now, the war has already been won. And I would say to you that that's absolutely true. The war has been won. Through Calvary, we're victors. But the battles are still raging. The every day of your life, if, you, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, the devil knows he can't send you to hell, but he tries to send you to the shelf. Listen. He tries to send you to the shelf and make you of none effect for the cause of Christ. I want us to notice, and we'll see over these three scriptures, and, and I'll go ahead and give you, you know, I don't, I, I, I'm not a very suspenseful person, so I'll go ahead and tell you. I had some folks mention to me and asking me what these three passages were. Uh, the first is found here in Genesis chapter number 3, and it's the interaction uh, between Satan and Eve. And I would say that we're going to see tonight that this was an attack on God's Scriptures. When Satan first spoke to mankind, the first thing he sought to do was to cause doubt upon the Word of God. The next occasion is in the book of Job and chapter number 1. And uh, Satan is appearing in heaven before God. And when he appears in heaven before God, he is attacking God's servant. The Bible says he's the accuser of the brethren. And let me say that I'm thankful that though not all things are controlled by God, God's always in control. I'm thankful that God's sovereign enough that he could even use the devil to accomplish his perfect will if he chose to do so. But that does not change the fact that the teachings of the Scripture are very clear and very apparent. Uh, that the believer can have satanic oppression in their life. The influence, satanic influence that is stifling them and hindering them from living in the way that God would have them to live. The third is found in the book of Luke chapter number 4. And it's there that Satan comes to Jesus Christ and begins seeking to tempt him. This is the attack on God's Son. It's this attack that characterizes the one world empire of the Antichrist to attack the person of Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that in all three of these things, God prevailed, aren't you? But understand that we can learn some things from it tonight, and I hope that we will in these next few moments. I want to say a quick word about Satan's wiles in this passage. The Bible speaks of the wiles of the devil. Now, some of you say, oh, preacher, what do you mean by wiles? Especially some of these youngsters, they've never heard that kind of language, you know. Uh, they grew up on this this, this weird animation, uh, the, this Japanese animation today. A lot of them grew up on uh, where, and it's like the old kung fu movies. You know, their mouth stops moving, but the words keep going. You know, and it's it's bright colors that cause seizures, and it just confuses me to death. But when I was growing up, uh, my parents always cut my teeth on the classics, Yosemite Sam. Amen. It's okay. We can shout about that. There's nothing wrong with that. Foghorn Leghorn, right? And uh, Sun, that's right, Brother Bill, Sun. And then there was another one, and some of the youngsters may remember him, by the name of Wiley Coyote. Poor, unfortunate fella. You ever had a day you felt like him? And everything was always going wrong for Wiley Coyote. But he was always scheming and he was always planning. 
I don't know what his account was with the Acme Corporation. But you'd think after so many anvils and, and, and holes in the wall and in the ground and, uh, and jack-in-the-box boxing gloves, you'd think at some point they would have cut that poor fellow off, but they didn't. He was always trying to scheme and come up with a way to defeat the roadrunner in every way, shape, fashion, and form. And it's funny that such a benign element of our experience would in a lot of ways be descriptive of our great adversary, the devil, because that same terminology uh, comes from the Bible terminology of the wiles of the devil. His devices, his schemes, his plans. And I want you to notice that Satan particularly targeted Eve in this satanic assault. Particularly targeted Eve. It's interesting that it was not through Eve that humanity fell into depravity. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And yet Satan was subtle enough and cunning enough to target and to assault Eve in this satanic oppression. It's because he had a plan, and it's a plan that we all need to understand. I want to give you three reasons, and I could probably give you a bunch, but three will suffice for tonight and the time we have, uh, that he used to target her. You know, the Bible says in uh, the book of 1 Peter chapter 5, and I believe it's verse 7, to be sober and to be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about. Now, what does the next phrase say? Seeking whom he may devour. That tells me that there's certain folks that Satan is not going to get. But there's other folks that he will. What separates those two groups of people? Let me say that any of us could be in either of those groups. If we choose to, we can be in that group that Satan does not have the capacity uh, to subdue and to subvert. But by the same token, it's just by the grace of God if we're not in that other group, which is the one that he targets. And notice three things very quickly that I believe caused him to target Eve that will cause Satan to target you and I. First off, I believe he targeted her because of her isolation. Now, we do not know much about the scene that is set before us. And I will confess to you that the language of this passage leads me to believe that Adam probably was present through the whole interaction. Look what it says down in verse number 6. At the very end of the verse, it says, "...and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat." But one thing is definitely sure about it. Through the entire thing, whether Adam was present or not... Adam was quiet through the entire matter. Now, I'll go ahead and confess to you that there are great typological truths found here. And I don't want to dismiss or undermine those. I'm aware that Eve is a picture of the the church. I'm aware that Adam is a picture of Christ. But it does not change the fact that here is Adam, and there's his wife Eve. He loves her. He cherishes her. He better because there ain't nobody else. He's only getting her. Amen. And yet in this situation, instead of trying to warn her or trying to protect her, he allowed her to enter into this mistake. Can I say that Satan comes to us when we've isolated ourselves, when we've cut off the people around us that will help us and encourage us. Then we make ourselves easy prey for the devil. You know why it's so important that you have a church family? Because the devil seeks loners. You know why it's so important that you be in good fellowship with your church family? And I don't mean just okay with them. I mean in good fellowship with them. I believe you ought to be closer to your church family than you are to anybody else in the world. I believe you ought to find... And I'm not saying it's wrong to have friends outside of church, 
But I'm saying that the best friends I've got in the world are in this room tonight. I love my church family. And even as a pastor, I would say especially as a pastor, I have a need of my church family to pray for me, to encourage me, to help me. And you as a believer have that same need. When we cut ourselves off, uh, isn't it funny that the first step, it seems, always for a person's life uh, going uh, to the ditch is that they get out of church? Satan is very deliberate in trying to cut people off from the communion of the house of God because he knows that if he can do that, he's got you at a place of vulnerability. That's why Satan tends to come to us in those dark morning hours or in the darkest of midnight when the entire house is quiet and still and asleep. And there we are left alone with our thoughts and with the Lord. What are we going to spend more time with, our thoughts or the Lord? And it's there in those moments that Satan often will come to us to oppress us, to tempt us, to try to subvert us and subdue us to his will. I believe Satan sought her out because of her isolation. Let me give you a second reason. I believe Satan sought her out because of her ignorance. Now, some of you said, no, that's chauvinistic, preacher. No, uh, that is just a factual English grammatical term that I'm using. To be ignorant is to lack knowledge in a particular matter. There's something interesting you'll find as you read through this passage. You'll find that when God gave, listen carefully, when God gave the command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Eve had not yet been created. We'll find in the next couple of verses here that when she quotes God's word, she adds something to it that was not said there. That leads me to believe that Eve's knowledge of God was of a second-hand nature. Now, I'm very aware of what the New Testament says about the order of the church, about the place of wives and women in the order of the church. I'm very aware that the Word of God says that women are to learn from their own husbands at home. I was just curious what you'd say when I said that. A lot of folks get upset, you know. But it's still in the Bible. Still in the Bible. You say, preacher, are you beating up on wives? No, I'm beating up on husbands because most of us wouldn't know how to teach them if we had to. No, the reality is, I'm aware of all those things, but listen carefully now. That does not mean that a woman's relationship with God is through the channel of her husband. Eve had a responsibility to walk in communion with God just like Adam did. Eve had her, hey, they walked together in the cool of the garden, uh, or in the garden in the cool of the evening. Don't you think that Eve had the opportunity to look over and say, Lord, why don't you tell me what you think about that tree of knowledge of good and evil? But I tend to believe on this passage, based upon her misquoting of God, and, uh, you know, it's one thing to take things away. Typically, listen now, uh, typically we will take things away when we misquote and not add to. But Eve adds something to it. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. It was not what Eve didn't know that facilitated her falling into deception. It was what she thought she knew that facilitated her falling into deception. You need to be careful the words you try to put in God's mouth and the things you try to assume that God thinks and believes and has said. You say, preacher, how do I keep from doing that? With an intimate knowledge of the Word of God. That's the only way. There's no other way. And I'd say to you tonight that one of the ways that you make yourself a target for Satan is by not knowing the Word of God in an intimate way. 
I'm thankful for the relationship between pastor and congregation. But let me tell you what I appreciate more than your trust. You listening? What I appreciate more than your trust is the sound of Bible pages rustling at the beginning of a message. I'm your preacher, friend. I'm not your pope. Nobody's your pope. I, I, I'm, I'm your preacher. I'm not Jesus Christ. This is, I don't sit ex-cathedra. This sit in St. Peter's Basilica. And even if it was, it still wouldn't mean anything. Amen? Uh, you don't have your relationship with God through me. That's not how this thing works. I, of course, a pastor is there to be an under-shepherd. Christ is the head of the church. And He does lead the church through pastors. I believe in that. I believe in pastoral authority. But that does not mean... That your relationship with God is something you have through me. Your relationship with God is your own to have with God. You say, how do I do that, preacher? Well, you've got a prayer closet. You've got a Bible. You've got the Holy Ghost if you've been saved. You can have a relationship with God and of yourself, and you ought to. And when we do not know the Word of God, let me tell you something. 90%, there I go with statistics again. (laughs) You ought to read what Mark Twain said about statistics sometimes. But uh, 90% of the time, the very heresies that are perpetrated by people are based upon misquotations of the Word of God. You'd be amazed how many times. You ever heard someone say this, that money is the root of all evil? You ever heard someone say that? Oh, we got a real problem with that then, because in heaven the streets are paved with gold. The foundations are a fine and precious stone. Uh, the pur of the gates of the city. Oh, I know that's the new Jerusalem, but we say heaven. But that is the new Jerusalem. I understand that the gate is made out of a single pearl. Not a pearly gate like we see in the newspaper funny pages, but uh, one pearl. No, money's not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. That's a misquotation of the Word of God. Sometimes we misquote it by literally misquoting it. Sometimes we misquote it by quoting it out of context. Uh, Let me tell you the favorite passage of every person out of the will of God. It's funny that it should be uniform, isn't it? But every person that's out of the will of God has a favorite passage. You know what it is? Judge not that ye be not judged. But they don't want to read on where it says that with what uh, measure ye meet out, it shall be meted unto you. So if we're judging things biblically, then we're in good shape because we're going to be judged by the Bible anyway. Amen? So I'm saying that an ignorance of the Word of God makes you a target for Satan. Let me give you a third thing, I think. I think also she was a target, listen now, because of her inclination. The Bible says when she looked upon the tree uh, that she saw that it was pleasant uh, to the eyes. And she desired it. It looked good to be eaten. And uh, it was desired to make one wise. You know what those three things are, don't you? For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, it's good to be eaten. Lust of the eyes, it's goodly to look upon. And the pride of life, to make one wise. All that is in the world. You see... She had a desire. And we can debate what that state of innocence meant all night long. I'm not implying that she was already sin-fallen and that's why she sinned here. I'm aware she was in innocence, but I'm also aware that she still had a weakness and frailty by virtue of her being a temporal being. And at that time, though she did have an eternal destiny, her current existence was material. It was temporal. It was physical. And she still had a weakness. And listen now, there's nothing you can really do much about this, but Satan has a target on all of us. You know why? Because we tend towards the lust of the flesh. 
every one of us. You say, preacher, but what can I do about it? You heard the old story, and I know I've told it, and it's been passed around, and everybody's heard it, uh, about the young man that was uh, observing the dog fight. And uh, every single time, this old man was sitting over to the side, and every single dog uh, that, uh, that he picked, it always seemed to win. And finally, that young man looked at that old man and said, how is it that you always pick a winner? And he said this, I always look for the one that looks like it's been fed better. Because the one that's been fed the most is the one that will prevail. The Bible says that the spirit and the flesh lust one against each other. We have a choice what we're going to feed. Now, listen, let me put it right down real plain for you. You've been feeding on worldliness all week. Don't be surprised when the devil comes a-knocking at your door. Now, I'm not saying that we live as isolationists. You know, some people say, well, don't be worldly, and then they try to paint everything as worldly. Absolutely everything. Even things that are benign, even things that are not intrinsically sinful or wrong, just everything is worldly. They'd they'd have us living uh, in burlap sacks like monks in the mountain. And I'm aware of that. But let me say that we're also not too ignorant, are we? We can tell usually when something's worldly or not. Listen, if our our flesh wants it, it's because it's worldly. If our spirit is convicted by it, it's because it's worldly. Most of the time, we really try to play God for the fool and say, Lord, I didn't know, when most of the time we really did know. We really did know. Uh, you, you know, one thing that I've found, and, and <laughs> oh, I'm not even going to go there. The Holy Spirit won't let me. Uh, we always desire the things that are lustful, and if we feed those things, it's going to make us a target for the devil. Notice, secondly, tonight, not only do we see Satan's wiles, but we see Satan's words. These are very important. Has Satan ever come to you speaking lies? Sure he has. Has he ever sidled up beside you and started to afflict and oppress you through the lies that he was telling you? I've experienced that. I'm sure that you have too. In Satan's first interaction with humanity, it's interesting that the three lies that he tells them are the same three lies that he's still telling them today. This was an attack, an all-out attack on the Word of God. There has always been an attack on the Word of God. The Word of God is that eternal hammer on which the, or that eternal anvil on which the hammers of empires and world leaders and pagan ideologies have been shattered time and time again. The Word of God will always stand, for it's settled forever in heaven, O Lord. I'm aware that nothing can ever stomp out the Word of God. It's been perfectly preserved, not on animal skins, uh, not the Word of God, but the words of God. Amen? Not just the ideas, but the very words, for it's the very words that form the ideas. Uh, Not just animal skins, not just uh, antiquated uh, antique specimens, uh, but the very living, breathing Word of God has been preserved for us today with all of its inspiration, with all of its perfection, with all of its infallibility. We have the Word of God today. Uh, I'm aware of that, but there's always been an attack on the Word of God. Always been an attack on the Word of God. And when Satan is speaking lies, it's because he's seeking to undo what God has spoken in truth to you. And notice the three things that he does. First off, this is important, he attacks the interpretation of God's Word. He comes with a question. Yea, hath God said? Hath God said? Oh, listen carefully now. There is a satanic conspiracy to undermine the Word of God in the world that we live in today. 
And as long as we live with the attitude of, oh, well, just different strokes for different folks, different people prefer different things, and that's okay as long as we live with that mentality, we're playing directly into this satanic conspiracy. I'm not here to vilify some person that uses a different version of the Bible. I'm not here to pick a fight that's already been won. It's already settled in heaven uh, forever. I'm not interested in doing that. No bones to pick, no axes to grind. But I am here to present you with truth. And as long as we look at what version of the Bible that we read as being incidental, then we're playing into the satanic conspiracy that Satan would have us to play into. It began with him questioning the interpretation of God's Word. Not the existence of God's Word. He didn't say, God didn't say that. Instead, this is what he said. What was God really saying when he said that? Could I just put it this way? Claiming that the Word of God is not plain. How silly is it to believe that God would go to such great lengths and efforts to reveal His Son and His mind to us, only to have one of two things happen, only to have it be lost within the first few hundred years after it was given, or two, why would He go to so much trouble to reveal it, only to have it concealed only to those who have uh, high degrees and doctrines and can understand and interpret 14 different languages? Isn't that silly? Doesn't that seem as though God would be working against Himself? Uh, Doesn't that seem as though God would be doing things in a foolish manner? I would propose to you that the Word of God is just that. It is a revelation to us of the mind of God. God meant what He said. God said what He meant. It's exactly as God would have it to be. Now, again, I'm not going to spend all night talking about the the, uh, corrupt texts that they used, and they did use corrupt texts. I'm not going to talk to you all night about the corrupt theologians uh, that translated the new versions of the Bible, though they were corrupt theologians. They believed in evolution. Uh, they believed in a Mariolatry, that, that they worshipped Mary. Uh, they were, I mean, uh, buddied right up with the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, they received sacraments from the Roman Catholic Church. And I'm not going to talk to you about the corrupt translation that they did, although I could. I could take you through the Word of God and show you times when they took out entire verses of the Word of God, uh, verses that it's abundantly clear and evident uh, were uh, not inconsequential, but verses that would uh, present whole doctrines as being radically different than what they are. But that's not what I'm interested in tonight. See, the idea as a preacher is you do all that and then say, but I'm not interested in that tonight. Amen. What I'm merely trying to get you to understand is this. The purpose of Satan is to muddy the clarity of God's Word and cause us to believe that God said something other than what He meant. He attacked the interpretation of God's Word. I believe not only did he attack the interpretation of God's Word, but what's the very next thing that he says? She says, oh, we can't eat of this. Uh, You know, uh, we can't even touch it, which was the addition that she made to the Word of God. And Satan goes on to say, uh, in verse number 4, he says, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. The first thing he attacked was the interpretation of the Word of God. The second thing he attacked was the integrity of the Word of God. The first thing that he sought to do was to try to get us to believe that the Word of God is not plain. The second thing he tried to get us to do is to understand or to believe that the Word of God is not powerful. 
This has always been the design and plan of Satan. In other words, to get us to disbelieve the promises of God. God said, if you eat of this, you're going to die. Satan came along and said, no, you're not going to die. You say, Satan's not doing that today, is he? Oh, yes, he is. The Bible says that wine is a mocker. Strong drink is rage. Whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. And the world comes along and says, yeah, but social drinking's okay. That's funny. Social murder isn't okay. Social stealing isn't okay. Social adultery isn't okay. But all of a sudden, social drinking is okay. The reality is, that's Satan coming along and saying, no, what God said, he didn't mean. The Word of God tells us that it's an abomination in the eyes of God for two people of the same gender to have a relationship one with another. The Word of God says it abundantly clear, says it in the Old Testament, and says it in the New Testament. And yet the Word of God, come, or that Satan comes along and tries to say, no, it's okay because they love each other. That's not love. Now, they'd lock me up as a terrorist if they ever listened, cared enough to listen to me saying this. But I'm being honest with you. That's not love, what goes on between two sodomites. That's carnality. That's a reprobate mind and a seared conscience. That's wickedness. That's an abomination in the eyes of God. You know what an abomination is? That's something that turns your stomach. It literally turns God's stomach, the idea of two sodomites uh, being with one another. I know that's not politically correct, but I'd rather be biblically correct tonight. Rather be biblically correct tonight. But the, Satan tries to come along and say, no, it's okay because they love one another. Well, no, it's not okay because the Word of God does not change. In other words, trying to say it's not going to happen. The Word of God says to forsake not the assembling yourselves together as the manner of some is, that the church is necessary for a good family life, home life, marriage, for raising our children. And the devil comes along and says, no, they need T-ball. No, no, they need dance class. No, they need this, they need that. The reality is your family needs a church family more than it needs anything. It needs that. Now, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to uh, you know, uh, bring down the hammer on the folks that's here on a Sunday night. I'm just merely trying to show you that Satan is still doing this today. He's still doing it today. We see that he tried to attack the integrity of the Word of God. But notice, thirdly, he tried to attack the intention of the Word of God. He said, For the Lord doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, ye shall become as gods, knowing good and evil. Notice the threefold lie of what he tried to say, that the Word of God is not plain, that the Word of God is not powerful, and that the Word of God is not profitable. Those are the three lies he tried to perpetrate upon Adam and Eve. In other words, the idea that you don't need the Word of God, the Word of God is not given for your edification. This is what Satan was saying, but it is given to bind you in bondage and in rules. It's not there to help you. It's there to hinder you. Could I ask you something today? What's the general consensus concerning the Word of God in the mind of the world today? Do they believe it helps us govern a country or hinders us from governing a country? Do they believe that it helps us raise children or do they believe that it hinders us from raising children? Do they believe that it helps educate young people or do they believe that it hinders educating young people? You see, this mindset has not changed uh, for these centuries. Uh, it's still the same today. The world still claims that we don't need the Word of God. And when the world can convince you to give your Bible up, they've got you conquered. 
You say, preacher, I'd never give my Bible up. I'd die. Oh, I don't mean, I don't mean they'll come into your house and try to take it away. We may be headed to that one day, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about if they can get you to the place where when God says something, you say, well, what do the scholars say first? I'm not against reading, friend. You ought to see my, my study. I mean, I got, I got more books than I know what to do with. Amen. Don't, don't loan me a book. I'll never read it and never give it back. You can ask my father-in-law. Amen. I got more books than I know what to do. I'm not against that. But I'm merely saying this. We need to be careful that we don't let people scholar our King James Bible away. Because that's the world we live in. You say, preacher, are you against Hebrew and Greek? No, I'm not against Hebrew or Greek. I ain't never eat either. I guess I ate a, a gyro sandwich one time, but I, I've never had matzo ball soup. I'm not opposed to uh, the Hebrew and the Greek, uh, but we need to understand from the get-go that if God preserved His Word, that Hebrew and that Greek's going to tell us the same thing that that English tells us. Isn't that right? It's the same thing if He's preserved it. I mean, hey, if I can green beans, when I open them up in six months, if they're anything other than green beans, I didn't preserve them right. If God's preserved His Word, when we open up that King James Bible, it's preserved. Now, I'm not opposed to doing a word study. I'm not opposed to examining how, what that, how that word is used in other places in the Word of God and how it's translated in other ways. I'm not opposed to doing that. But when I come to a place that Mr. Concordance tells me something means different than my King James Bible, I just shut Mr. Concordance. Because I assume he's wrong and God's right every time. We see that they sought, uh, Satan sought to destroy the intention of God's Word, to claim that it was there to give us shackles, there to give us boundaries. Uh, let, let me, I'm going to preach at the young people, all of them, <laughs> uh, for a moment. Oh, boy, did you hear say she's going to make a good church member, isn't she? They think that. They just don't say it when I come over near them. Uh, but not just them. we got other young people here. Be careful that you don't let Satan make you feel like you're trapped by being raised in a godly environment. Be careful of that. Because you know what? The, the lie that Satan will come along and tell you all is, if you just get out from these parents or from this preacher or from this church, do things your way, then you'd be happy. He's been telling that lie since day one. He was telling this lie in the Garden of Eden when he said, God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. The irony of it is that when they did eat of it, they did know good from evil. But that's not what Satan was saying. Satan was saying this, when you do this, you'll get to decide what's right and what's wrong rather than listen to what God has to say about oh, what an indictment. What a picture of our world that we live in today. It's all relative. It's just a matter of what you believe. And yet we all operate with absolutes in our life, every one of us. And yet the atheist would tell us there are no absolutes. What foolishness for an atheist to make that statement, for that very statement is an absolute. We live in a world of absolutes. You say, what's the greatest absolute? The greatest absolute is that the Word of God is absolutely true all the time in every way, shape, fashion, and form. I want you to notice a third thing, and then I'm done. Notice Satan's, not only his wiles and his words, but notice Satan's will. Can I say to you tonight that, the, that God has a will for your life? A very specific will. A very definite will. God has desires for the way that you live and operate. But can I say to you tonight that Satan has a will for your life too? God's will uh, is that you live in defeat, or live in victory. Satan's will is that you live in defeat. God's will is that you be a witness. Uh, Satan's will is that you stifle the witness that lives within you that is the Holy Spirit. 
Satan has a will. And notice the three things that that will is. First off, notice that it's to bring or to cause shame. Now listen carefully to what I'm about to say. There is a difference between shame and godly sorrow. Godly sorrow leadeth to repentance. Shame leadeth to despair. Look what happens. They eat of it. And the Bible says that they knew in that moment that they were naked. You say, but preacher, shouldn't that drive them to the Lord? Well, that's the difference between shame and godly sorrow. When they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the cool of the garden, they fled from it. If it had been godly sorrow, they would have fled to it. But it was shame. Satan's desire in the life of the believer. You know, the Bible says that we have been sprinkled from a guilty conscience. The book of Hebrews, isn't that what it says? Purged from a guilty conscience. Purged from dead works to serve a living God. Our conscience has been sprinkled and we've been purged from dead works. You say, what are those dead works? Those dead works are our sin. Through the blood of the cross of Calvary, we've been purged of those that our conscience might be liberated, that we might in full Christian boldness come boldly under the throne of grace and have access with confidence into the presence of God. Satan's desire through causing us to sin is to have us flee from the communion that we have with God because of our sin. Uh, you know, uh, and, and there's a lot of things that we call humility that are not humility. You listening to me? Humility isn't about how low you can present yourself. It's about how high you can present Jesus Christ. Humility is not about self-abasement. It's about the Savior's exaltation. True humility is not uh, about uh, trying to put yourself down in the mud as far as you can. It's about putting Jesus Christ on the throne where He belongs. And Satan's desire is to paralyze us through shame over the mistakes that we've made and the sins that we've committed. Every one of us have done wrong. We've made mistakes. We've sinned. Now, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to go before the throne of God and confess our sins? If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or are we going to be paralyzed by it and live in shame over the way that we have acted? Have you ever wondered, listen now, as a Christian, you ever wondered why it is that that sin don't seem like such a good idea about two seconds after you've committed it? You ever wondered that? Now listen now, I think you know what I'm talking about tonight. That sin does not seem like it was such a good idea about two seconds after you've committed it. Why? Satan has allowed the polish and the luster to be wiped off of that sin because he's already got you to commit it. Now his power, now his influence is in causing you to be ashamed over it and to live in defeat. You say, but preacher, shouldn't we be ashamed of our sin? We should be sorrowful over our sin. Sorrowful that we've broken the heart of God. Sorrowful that we've done wrong, but with full confidence that if we go to him, he can wash us clean of it and he can forgive us of it. Notice, first off, it's to cause shame, but secondly, it's to cause a severing. It's to cause shame of conscience, but a severing of communion. They hid from him. This is the first time this had ever happened. They're hiding from him. Here God had walked with them, and we don't know. We have no clue. Adam and Eve did not begin to die until after they partake of the fruit. We don't know how long they spent in the Garden of Eden. I'm not an old earth person. 
by any means. But I'm merely saying we don't know how long it was. could have been hundreds of years they had spent in the garden in communion with God. But whether it was a hundred years or whether it was a hundred days, what happens next has never happened before. They hear the voice of God, and instead of gravitating towards it, they hide from it. Can I tell you something? Can I tell you that in my life, my experience has been this. When I've sinned, nine times out of ten, there is an inclination and a desire, instead of getting it settled with God, to pull away from my communion with the Lord. You ever seen people that wound up in the depths and the dregs of sin? You wondered, how did that happen? After they sinned, instead of getting it right, they took a step away and another step and another step. And they've hid for so long that they're not sure God even knows their name anymore. I'm thankful He never forgets our name. I'm thankful of that. But understand that part of Satan's desire, just as his desire is to get you out of communion with your church family, his desire is to get you out of communion with your father and to try to get you to run from that communion. Let me give you a final thing, and then I'm done. Not only is he desiring to cause shame of consciousness, or conscience, I'll get it right here in a second. Not only is he trying to uh, cause a severing of communion, but I would say that he's trying to cause a sorrow in compliance. Notice the word that's used here. And I'll read this and say a word and we'll be done. But look down with me at verse number 16. As God is dealing out the punishment, he says this, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy what? Sorrow. And thy conception, in what sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. What about Adam? And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In what sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life? Now listen carefully. I'm just going to try to say this and be done, because I feel like the Lord's done with me. It was the will of God for her to bear forth children. That was the will of God. Now you say, oh, preacher, you're saying, no, I'm not talking about your family or your circumstances. Don't make it about you tonight. I'm merely saying that in Eve's life, it was the will of God for her to bring forth children. God had given that command for them to go forth and replenish the earth. It was the will of God for her to bear children. It was the will of God for Adam to toil the ground. The Bible says that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden and put man in it to keep it. Here's what I want you to get. That which God intended for their peace and joy and fulfillment, when sin entered into the picture, became a place of sorrow. Please listen to what I'm about to tell you. You know what can make church miserable for you? Sin. You know what can make your Bible a closed and bitter book to you? Sin. You know what can make your prayer closet a cold and hateful place? Sin. Satan's desire is to cause the things that are the will of God for you to be a burden and a drudgery for you. God's will for us as believers is that we might serve Him with joy with gladness, with jubilation, with a passion, a zeal, and an excitement. That is a testimony to this lost and dying world. Satan knows and understands 
that we live long enough in this world and, and if, we're, if we're God's child, now you don't have to believe this and you can feel this is extreme if you want, but if we belong to God, if we live in disobedience long enough, there's a good chance God will kill us over it. Amen? Because we're not doing anything for Him and we're just, we're just bringing shame to the name of Jesus Christ and there's no sense in us being here. So Satan understands that it's not necessarily that he has to stop you from doing the things that God wants you to do. And certainly, certainly, uh, he understands uh, that God is going to require us to be obedient. But if he can just cause us to toil in sorrow, he's satisfied. I see so many Christians, not before me tonight, but I see so many Christians in the walk of life that are miserable serving God. They're just miserable. They're miserable going to church. They're miserable reading their Bible. They're miserable praying. It's just a drudgery, just a burden. And they're right where Satan wants them to be. Satan's desire, his will for your life is to make you miserable in serving him. Don't give him the satisfaction tonight. Get the victory through Jesus Christ.